The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Tumor Treating Fields as an Innovative Modality of Cancer Therapy from CNS to Thoracic Malignancies and Beyond. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HHW860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. Uh, I'd like to welcome all of you in the room as well as those joining us virtually online uh, to this continuing education event of tumor treating fields as an innovative modality of cancer therapy from CNS to thoracic malignancies and beyond. So tonight I'd uh, like to first introduce myself. Uh, my name is Eric Solman. I'm a radiation oncologist from NYU in New York. Uh, to my left, uh, first I have uh, Dr. Tiziana Leal, a medical oncologist from Emory University. And then to her left, I have Zachary Horn, a radiation oncologist from Allegheny Medical Cancer Institute. So today, we want to build an understanding of the mechanistic evidence and rationale for the use of tumor-treating fields in a variety of malignancies. And we want to help you integrate tumor-treating fields into the multimodality management of your patients. We want to provide you with strategies designed to deal with any adverse events that may occur, any toxicities from the treatment. Uh, and so hopefully we'll achieve those goals tonight. So let's start off talking about the history of tumor treating fields, which is uh, in reality a relatively new modality. The first trial, the first pilot trial, was in glioblastoma back in 2004, called the EFO7 trial. It was a full seven years later that the FDA made its first approval for tumor-treating fields in recurrent glioblastoma, the EF11 trial. And we'll talk about that trial in detail. Four years later, uh, approval was obtained for tumor-treating fields in newly diagnosed glioblastoma. Four years after that, tumor-treating fields was approved for the use in unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma. And now, as you'll hear about tonight, there are many ongoing solid tumor trials, including some that have come out with results very recently. Now, despite these uh, advancements over the past uh, nearly 20 years, clinical utilization remains low. We have the most data on patients with glioblastoma, of course, and TT fields is used only in 3 to 12% of those with newly diagnosed disease, and there are many reasons for this. Only 0 to 16% of those with recurrent disease, even so that indication has been around far longer. So we're going to address best practices for overcoming the challenges and barriers to prescribing TT fields for patients with GBM and mesothelioma and prepare to implement these novel treatments in other aggressive cancers. So it's often asked, what is the mechanism of action of TT fields? And there are actually many mechanisms of action, but I think the one that is most well-studied and most and easiest to understand is the antimitotic activity of tumor-treating fields. So as you all know, within cells, there are uh, ions as well as polar or charged molecules. These can be very large proteins, for example. Charged particles uh, and dipoles, things with positive and negative charges, are, can be influenced when applied uh, within an electric field. 
So TT fields are high-frequency alternating electric fields that disrupt charged particles during mitosis. So as charged particles like proteins that need to move are disrupted, this can lead to cell death, particularly as it impairs the, the final steps of cell division, the cytokinesis. Non-dividing cells tend to be spared uh, from the effects of tumor-treating fields. So uh, to help illustrate this, we have a sort of cartoon video that will uh, just take a minute to watch. So why don't we start the video? In metaphase of cell division, cells are a rounded shape as the mitotic spindle forms. Intracellular components such as macromolecules and organelles are naturally charged. Tumor-treating fields, or TT fields, disrupt cancer cell division by physically interacting with molecules required for mitosis. When alternating electric fields are applied to cancer cells, they disrupt microtubule polymerization. Tubulin dimers align with the electric field and are not able to form microtubules. This prevents the organized assembly of the mitotic spindle required for normal cell division. The inhibition of microtubule formation leads to metaphase arrest and cancer cell death. In addition, these deformed microtubules can lead to abnormal DNA segregation between daughter cells, which also results in cancer cell death. TT fields can also affect cells after metaphase. If a cancer cell has passed metaphase and enters the cytokinesis phase, the cell takes on an hourglass shape. This state under TT fields creates a non-uniform electric field inside the cell, creating dielectrophoresis. Net forces push the macromolecules and organelles toward the mitotic furrow, and this disruption leads to structural disorganization and cancer cell death. Great, that obviously was not my voice. Um, so TT fields uh, can be delivered at various frequencies, and I always like to give a, uh, a reference to these frequencies for people that aren't used to seeing them. The electric field that's alternating in the outlets of this room or in your home are 60 hertz, so once every second. So this is in the thousands hertz, kilohertz range. So uh, what you see is that Normal intestine, for example, and different normal tissues have a frequency that's quite distinct from those of cancer cells, and that cancer cells of different types have different frequencies that achieve the greatest cell death. So glioblastoma, for example, is in the 200 kilohertz range, uh, while non-small cell lung carcinoma is 150 kilohertz. So the key takeaway is that the effect on cells is inversely related to cell size. So that's a clue about the first uh, question you saw before. Okay, so I'm going to uh, lead off today's agenda by talking about the role of TT fields in the management of patients with CNS cancers, particularly glioblastoma. Uh, then Dr. Leal is going to talk about uh, the present and future use of TT fields in the treatment of thoracic malignancies. And then Dr. Horn has perhaps the greatest challenge because he's going to talk about many other types of solid tumors. So he's the other in the title. Um, so I will start off. Uh, I'm going to talk about the illuminating the expanding role of TT fields as part of multimodal management of CNS cancers 
as supported by real-world evidence. And this is all the things I do in my spare time. So uh, as most of you know, glioblastoma is uh, the most common primary malignant uh, cancer in adults. And it is also one of the most aggress aggressive cancers of any cancer in adults. Uh, the key factors that predict outcome, uh, number one is patient age. Uh, and then some other factors that have been important uh, that are not molecular factors like extent of surgical resection, to some extent location, and a patient functional status, uh, and then a variety of molecular factors. But nevertheless, even those predicted to have a relatively improved survival compared to others based on these prognostic factors, everybody still has a poor prognosis, and there are very limited treatment options for these patients. So TT Fields, which as I mentioned is approved for both primary and recurrent glioblastoma, is delivered using this device. And what it is, it's a non-invasive device that provides localized tumor-treating fields, those alternating electric fields. The fields are generally of low intensity, and we measure intensity using the unit's volt per centimeter. Uh, and the frequency is 200 kilohertz for glioblastoma. And it's delivered in two directions. So you can see it's delivered side to side and front to back on this uh, model's head. Uh, it's delivered through what are called transducer arrays, which are uh, actually the, the electrical disc uh, placed within a large uh, patch that's adhered to the scalp. Uh, the, the, the electrical arrays connect via wires to a, um, uh, a battery pack where the, and a transmitter where the, uh, frequency, where the uh, electric field is generated, a field generator. And that's carried usually in a backpack or in a, uh, uh, in this case, a, a shoulder bag. The positioning of the arrays is very individualized for each patient. Uh, and it's based on the location of the resection cavity uh, where the tumor was after surgery or where the tumor still remains if the patient didn't get a complete resection. So I'll just uh, present a case of a patient that was treated in my clinic. Uh, this is a 62-year-old male. He presented with a two-month history of vision loss and apraxia. Uh, he went to ophthalmology. They noted a field cut and sent immediately to the emergency department for imaging, where MR showed uh, what I'm going to show you, two heterogeneously enhancing lesions in the right parietal and temporal lobes and associated flare uh, around it. So I can just show you that. So that's the flare around that portion. And then this is the second lesion and there's the flare around that, and it kind of leads into the flare of the first lesion. Uh, this was, uh, what one of these tumors was resected. The pathology showed glioblastoma, IDH wild type. For those of you who specialize in glioblastoma, you know they have to be IDH wild type. The MGMT, which is an important prognostic biomarker and also predicts response to alkylator chemotherapy, was methylated, which is the better way of having it. Um, the epidermal growth factor receptor gene was amplified. The TERP promoter uh, was mutated, which is common in these tumors. The patient was treated with chemoradiation uh, with concurrent temozolomide alkylator chemotherapy, followed by adjuvant temozolomide with tumor-treating fields. So as I mentioned, tumor-treating fields are personalized, and this is done through individual treatment mapping. So there's specialized software uh, that generates the transducer layout. Uh, this software is uh, 
does not need to be in the clinic uh, and simply sending the MR images to uh, the manufacturer will provide the layout using the software. Uh, the, the layout is designed to maximize TT field intensity at the tumor or tumor bed. There, uh, there are patient-specific based uh, segmentation-based treatment planning. So this is a, a next-generation software uh, which will yield higher average, uh, what we call minimum power density and minimum field intensity. And this may lead to improved outcome. This is being presented, this new planning version is being presented tomorrow morning uh, uh, at uh, the presentation shown below uh, here at this meeting, uh, Abstract 2193. Uh, but in, in general, both approaches use the MR software uh, to determine the plan and where to place the arrays. The clinical data that define the use of tumor treating fields in newly diagnosed patients with glioblastoma uh, is the EF14 trial shown here. So in this trial, patients receive standard chemoradiation with concurrent temozolomide. Uh, they then were randomized to get adjuvant temozolomide uh, alone or adjuvant temozolomide with tumor-treating fields. Uh, they, could, they were uh, instructed to use the device for 18 hours a day or more, and they uh, continued, if they chose to, all the way through to second progression. So they could continue through first progression if they, uh, if they chose and the treating physician agreed. Uh, this trial was stratified by extent of resection and the status of MGMT. These are the results uh, that were initially uh, reported at the Society for Neuro-Oncology meeting in 2016 and subsequently published the following year. And this shows that there was a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in overall survival for these patients uh, that persisted all the way out to five years. Uh, and you can see that the median survival in those uh, that got tumor-treating fields was 20.9 months from randomization, or really two years from diagnosis. So typically, we think of a survival of 15 to 17 months. So this is going two years, which is quite good. Uh, notably, the control arm did well, uh, a little better than we typically see, 19.8 months, uh, as opposed to what I just said, and that's because patients that progressed before adjuvant chemotherapy were excluded from the trial, so bad actors were not included in the, uh, uh, in the trial. And most interestingly, subgroup analysis showed that regardless of the uh, subgroup you looked at, MGMT, uh, extent of resection, age, that the use of TT fields was better than not using TT fields. So, uh, for example, you might have seen in the question, age greater than 65. No, it, age greater than 65 still gets an overall survival benefit with the use of tumor-treating fields, and the extent of resection doesn't matter. Uh, Recently, we've uh, now uh, have some real-world evidence, you might call it. This is retrospective data on patients actually treated. This is a report that came out last year. And as you can see, uh, not just in the clinical trial, but in this sort of uh, post-trial era, uh, you see a very significant improvement in overall survival for those patients that get tumor-treating fields versus those that don't. So uh, the results of the F14 trial compelled the NCCN to include 
tumor treating fields as one of the standard options uh, for patients with newly diagnosed glioblastoma, uh, regardless of the MGMT methylation status. You can see that in the red box, it's in both the methylated and unmethylated groups. Uh, this is showing age less than 70 years, but uh, I can show you that for age greater than 70 years, it's the same recommendation. Uh, I just, again, will point out that we have practice aids available for you going to the peer review website, which you can download, uh, which provide this information and which really can be helpful for incorporating it to practice. There was no difference in quality of life uh, by the use of tumor treating fields. It was maintained throughout the course of treatment. You can see at 12 months, it was the same as tem temozolomide alone. Uh, and the survival benefit even so patients were encouraged to use the device more than 18 hours a day, uh, what you can see is that even if they only use the device half the recommended time, uh, which is the lowest blue bar right here, what you can see is that even that was statistically better than temozolomide alone. So while we want patients, we do see a survival increase the longer the patients wear the device. There is still a benefit even if the patients wear the device for only half the recommended time. 86% uh, of patients received a survival benefit from tumor treating fields uh, when they used the device more than half the time. Uh, I mentioned two metrics that can be useful in determining uh, the, the benefit and have been incorporated into the new treatment planning approach. That is intensity and power density. And you can see that both increasing the density, that volt per centimeter, uh, or, the, or the power density, which is a volumetric measure of dose, similar to the dosimetry we're all familiar with as radiation oncologists, uh, you see an improvement in survival. And so uh, the previous and the current way of planning uses a geographic planning, just where is the tumor bed. Uh, but now using the MRI, it will be possible, as you'll hear in the abstract tomorrow, uh, to actually uh, map dose. Uh, if you look where the dose was distributed in the EF14 trial, what you see is that areas that got higher dose uh, are uh, less likely to have tumor progression. Those areas show regression. Areas that have lower dose are more likely to be the sites of progression. So there does appear to be a dose-response relationship between tumor-treating fields and glioblastoma. So what are some of the emerging strategies that are going on uh, now? So one is to combine tumor-treating fields, adjuvant temozolomide now with pembrolizumab. Uh, and you might wonder why a checkpoint inhibitor. Well, uh, a couple of possible scientific rationales for this. One is uh, there's evidence that tumor-treating fields can open the blood-brain barrier. And so uh, that might be helpful. But there's also, and more compelling evidence, that tumor-treating fields can cause an immune response, can actually activate T-cell immunity. So there may be a benefit to combining with pembrolizumab. Another interesting trial is to try to improve that dosimetry, if you will, and that is by using high-density arrays. So these are uh, different arrays than are currently used clinically. Uh, they are, as they say, they have more electrodes on them, and they can deliver uh, a more intense field. And that trial is ongoing, the EF33 trial. Uh, there are attempts uh, uh, to try to 
uh, reduce scalp toxicity, which I'll talk about in a minute, uh, and um, uh, deliver radiation uh, with tumor-treating fields and temozolomide. And then there are some trials in brain metastases, both in non-small cell uh, and in small cell. And, and this is this idea that you could reduce distant brain failure uh, by combining uh, classic treatments with uh, tumor-treating fields, which um, uh, would uh, reduce that effect, reduce those distant failures. The METIS trial, the first one shown there for non-small cell, uh, is nearly complete. So uh, one ongoing trial I'm going to spend a little more time on is called the Trident trial, so uh, sometimes called EF32. And this is a trial that is combining tumor-treating fields during the concurrent chemoradiation portion of the treatment for patients with glioblastoma. So the EF14 trial did not start the tumor-treating fields until after the patient completed chemoradiation. And of course, as I did mention in that trial, patients were not randomized if they showed progression at, uh, prior to the start of adjuvant treatment. In this trial, of course, that isn't a, a possibility. So in this trial, patients are getting tumor-treating fields with the radiation. They actually have the arrays on. This is an ongoing trial. It's 950 patients. There was a preceding small safety trial to demonstrate that you could deliver radiation right through the arrays. Now, the arrays are not on. They're not plugged in, so to speak, to the field generator, but they're still adherent to the scalp, and it didn't cause a bolus effect on the scalp by doing so. So this very large trial will look for a further improvement in overall survival by adding tumor-treating fields to the chemoradiation phase, hoping to get a benefit from both um, the use of uh, TT fields with radiation and, of course, that we already know the benefit with temozolomide. Uh, there is uh, a meta-analysis that uh, Dr. Matt Ballow, uh, a one-time colleague of mine actually many years ago, will be presenting tomorrow uh, around the same time as the previous abstract I mentioned, and he's going to talk about uh, that this meta-analysis suggests that this Trident trial will likely be positive, the meta-analysis showing a significant benefit when combining TT fields with standard chemoradiation and newly diagnosed GBM. Uh, so he'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay, so uh, there are five principles we want to convey uh, when it comes to the use of TT fields. So number one, frequency. Low frequency for large cancer cells, high frequency for small cancer cells, okay, like glioblastoma and lung. Intensity. So an intensity of greater than one volt per centimeter is associated with improved overall survival. And this is not related to compliance, because I showed you that even with low, poor compliance, there's a survival benefit, but there's a real important benefit to having a certain intensity threshold. Time. The longer the patient wears the device, the, the, longer, the better the improvement in survival. Uh, it basically is an exposure question. It's the longer you expose the tumor cells, the more you're catching them within cell division, uh, the more likely you are to result in cell kill. Power density, this is that other metric of dosimetry. A power density greater than 1.1 is associated with improved OS, independent, again, of compliance. So you have intensity and power density both having these thresholds which show an improvement. Now, dose density is power density 
plus compliance. So that's kind of like a metric that encompasses everything. Uh, it shows a stepwise improvement in overall survival with longer use plus the delivery of higher dose to tumor. So this is a combination of patient uh, compliance and uh, physician-directed delivery, uh, which is uh, uh, certainly something we can encourage and will, uh, as treatment planning improves, we'll have more control over. Okay, let's just talk about skin just very briefly. I think my colleagues are going to get into this more frequently. But this patient that, we, that I presented did have some pruritus, um, and this is common. Skin toxicity is really the only toxicity that we see with tumor-treating fields, and it has to do with the adhesive on the arrays. Um, we can talk at length about this. There is uh, a practice guide uh, available on the website. We're going to talk about it more later in the uh, presentations. But uh, typically, topical steroids uh, are sufficient for most patients. Uh, and we tell the patients to rearrange the arrays every few days. And when they rearrange the arrays, they move them by a couple of centimeters, still hitting the target, but kind of taking some of the pressure off that skin, some of the irritation off the skin. Uh, if blistering develops, you can get a, uh, some more sophisticated moist compresses, moist compresses, cold moist compresses can help. Sometimes you need to go to systemic corticosteroids. I do uh, often send them to a oncologic dermatologist if they have severe skin reactions, and that is usually more than enough to control it. Uh, here are uh, a summary of the clinical trials of TT fields looking at the skin adverse reactions and usage rates. And you can see patients with grade three skin AEs, the percentages in the various trials, the recurrent GBM, EF11, EF14, et cetera. So it is, um, it is the most common uh, event we see. It's typically very minor and easily managed. Uh, okay, so uh, panel discussion, management of dermatologic AEs. Um, I guess this is for all of us to, uh, to discuss. Uh, do you want to talk about this at all? Or I guess we'll, we'll get into a little bit more. But uh, the, the diagnosis is we don't have to be dermatologists. Let me just say that right away. We are not all dermatologists. Most of us are radiation oncologists. I hope not people that came for the food. Um, and, uh, but having said that, there's lots of causes for these AEs that can be, um, some people are just predisposed to them. Some people are in a warm, warm, humid, warm or humid environment, or it's the middle of the summer. Uh, some people have very dry skin and are always scratching in, in general, and so just the use of the adhesive alone is enough. If they have trauma, if they have uh, a poorly healed incision, that can cause a lot of uh, issues. Sometimes you need to use topical antibiotics for those. Uh, sometimes you need to even use oral antibiotics in uh, some cases. I mentioned the use of oral steroids. Uh, sometimes uh, for people with hyperhidrosis, you need to use an antiperspirant, essentially, aluminum chloride. Um, uh, but I would say the vast majority of patients, it's sufficient to use topical corticosteroids. That is by far the most common thing that I'm using in my practice. So again, there is a practice aid. I don't know if you want to add anything to this, but I think otherwise we'll move on. Uh, and I recommend uh, taking a look at that. This is uh, my patient. Uh, he did really well, super compliant, super compliant. This is a multifocal GBM patient. So for those of you that treat GBM, multifocal GBM uh, does very poorly. Uh, this patient is doing very well. Originally diagnosed in 
April 2021, still alive today. In August, he had his first evidence of progression on MRI. You can see that uh, here. Um, this was surgically resected. He went for a second craniotomy, had it removed. And what you saw was reactive brain tissue, some atypical nuclei, a minute focus of recurrent residual glioma, only, only identified based on P53 immunostain. And that was within an area of treatment effect. It is almost impossible not to get evidence of some cells because if they never go into cell division, those cells are still there. They don't go away. And so this is essentially no disease. Uh, more than two years out of multifocal GBM, so very impressive result. I'm going to hand it over now to Dr. Leal, who's going to talk about uh, treatment of thoracic malignancies. Take Thank it away. you. Thank you for the introduction. So we'll talk about shining a light on the present and future of TT fields for multimodality treatment of thoracic malignancies. <clears throat> so talking about electric fields in thoracic malignancies, similar concepts apply to thoracic malignancies. And I will say that some of the clinical applications in the clinical trials that we have used, we've learned from the GBA, GBM experience. So the electric field distribution effectively needs to cover the lungs to allow for the treatment of malignant pleural mesothelioma. And the same applies to non-small cell lung cancer that we use in the clinical trial called the lunar trial that I'll talk about. The intensity of tumor treating fields in the lungs is again, we're talking again about the same concept, one to four volts per centimeter, which is above the minimum threshold needed for a response. The field distribution is higher in the mesothelium than in the lung parenchyma, and the arrays need to be personalized. The layout needs to be personalized according to the location of the tumors. And it's also important to note that BMI is an important factor to consider when selecting an appropriate array size. And we saw today the presentation by Dr. Shapiro at ASTRO 2023 demonstrating that patients with BMI of 30 or greater can utilize TT fields, but it's important to take into account the patient's body habitus and the BMI, and that perhaps then you need to select the appropriate size of the transducer arrays. And they do come in two sizes, small or large, and the size choice is determined by the anatomy of the individual patient. In thoracic malignancies, as you can see here, patients apply two pairs of these arrays. And again, the electric fields are delivered by the portable medical device. The recommendation here is similar to GBM, that the recommendation is for continuous use for 18 hours or greater during the day, and that's the target for 75% of the day. So this is the study that led to approval of malignant uh, of TT fields in malignant pleural mesothelioma. This is a single arm prospective phase two study called the STELLAR trial that included patients with unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma with evidence of measurable disease using modified resist. These patients were then treated with tumor treating fields at 150 kilohertz with the recommendation of the target 18 hours a day or greater with combination of the systemic chemotherapy backbone, pemetrexid at the standard dose of 500 milligrams per liter squared IV on day one, and then the platinum, which could be cisplatin or carboplatinum. Patients then continued on after six cycles of their systemic therapy to tumor-treating fields maintenance therapy until disease progression. 
the primary endpoint of this study is overall survival with the comparison of historical controls. And in this study, they used the best available historical control data that we had, which was the Volzogain data that demonstrated in this study that the combination of platinum plus pemetrexid and unresectable malignant pleuromesothelioma led to median overall survival of approximately 12 months. So here are the efficacy results of the Stellar trial in this single-arm phase two study. The median overall survival in the Stellar trial was 18.2 months, with a one-year overall survival of 62.2%. The two-year overall survival was in the 40% range. And this was very promising, met that statistical significance. Again, you know, historical control, the 12-month median OS, that was sort of the baseline. Importantly, we know that there is differential um, potential response in whether patients have epithelioid or sarcomatoid histology. The median overall survival in the epithelioid population was 21.2 months. The median PFS was 7.6 months. The response rate here using modified recess was 40% with a high disease control rate. So positive study based on the statistical analysis that was predetermined here for the Stellar trial. And again, also promising secondary endpoints of response rate, clinical benefit. The median time between start of treatment and partial response was 1.8 months, and all patients presenting with a partial response had continuous reduction in the total sum of the lesion diameters, with the median duration response of 5.7 months. And again here, comparing to historical controls, the response rates were similar to the rates reported for the current standard of care of platinum pemetrexid, but lasted longer here with the addition of TT Fields therapy to the standard systemic therapy. So this led to the approval of TT Fields for unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma in 2019 in combination with the standard backbone of platinum pemetrexid. And how did this stack up according to the options that we have for malignant pleural mesothelioma? Well, at the time our standard was platinum pemetrexid, the other option was the addition of bevacizumab to platinum pemetrexid. And then subsequently, we actually had the CheckMate trial that led to the approval of Nevo plus IPI in 2020 with, um, in a randomized phase three trial demonstrating improved overall survival of Nevo plus IPI versus chemotherapy. And as you can see here, uh, there is a differential sort of greater magnitude of benefit of nevo-ipi, for example, in the non-epithelioid population that you see in the red box. But in the epithelioid population here, the median overall survival with nevo plus ipi was 18.7 months versus chemotherapy, which was 16.5 months. I think it's important to highlight, we just heard at WCLC 2023, the MARS-2 trial, which was a randomized study that actually demonstrated that you know, perhaps we're putting into question the role of surgery for patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma. In that study, the use of decortication, pleurectomy decortication in patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma that were deemed to be resectable actually led to increased risk of death and put into question in this randomized study the use of surgery for patients with mesothelioma, which I think sort of really highlights the need for really effective systemic therapies and sort of different options for our patients with malignant pleural mesothelioma. We have real-world data for the use of tumor-treating fields in patients with unresectable malignant pleural mesothelioma. This is a small case series, the first real-world uh, data, only including five patients here. And I'll summarize the data to show that 
This really was really a descriptive um, analysis of five patients who utilized TT fields in combination with the systemic backbone of platinum pemetrexid, demonstrating the feasibility of use of TT fields in the real world, although there were some interesting points made in this small subset of patients. One, that the usage rate of TT fields in this real-world data was lower than what was achieved in the clinical trial. We don't have, like in GBM, a clear association of improved outcomes with usage rates, um, but here it was clear that you know, there is a drop-off after three months of use, and even within the first three months, the use of TT fields uh, was lower than what was reported in the stellar trial, which was about 68%. In this study, we saw about 52%. And as, as you can imagine, dermatitis was the most common side effect that was seen in the stellar trial and also seen here in this real-world data analysis of only five patients. So let's move on to non-small cell lung cancer. What are the multimodality therapy considerations for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Here's a patient with stage four advanced non-small cell lung cancer who had progression of disease, mainly bulky intrathoracic disease after frontline chemoimmunotherapy. This patient had squamous non-small cell lung cancer. So what are our options once pa patients have progression of their disease on frontline chemoimmunotherapy? This is an outline of the NCCN guidelines for patients who have progression on frontline chemoimmunotherapy. Subsequent therapies are really limited in terms of benefits that patients derive from the standard second-line therapy. Really, the major and only FDA-approved therapy that was approved now back in 2014 was the combination of docetaxel plus ramucirumab. For patients that did not have prior immune checkpoint inhibitors, the option of immune checkpoint inhibitors in second line is still evidence-based based on multiple randomized phase three trials. So let's move on to the experience of TT fields in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. We had preclinical evidence of the combination of TT fields with systemic therapies leading to increased efficacy in non-small cell lung cancer models. This is the EF15 trial investigating now the feasibility and the safety of tumor-treating fields in combination with pemetrexid chemotherapy after prior platinum-based chemotherapy in patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. In this study, the primary endpoint of the phase one part of this study was safety. The secondary endpoint actually was time to progression within the field. Um, and what this is showing here is that overall in this study, which was mainly based in Sweden, there were uh, really no significant grade three or higher adverse events of high grade uh, that were noted. The majority of patients actually had grade one and two dermatitis. There were no grade four toxicities, no grade five toxicities, no deaths attributable to tumor treating fields in combination with pemetrexid. And the patients that did have dermatitis were managed and improved with the application of topical steroids. In addition, with the uh, you know, uh, endpoint of the time to infield progression, that was actually no different than time to overall tumor progression. And it did show a promising both median progression-free survival and median overall survival with the addition of TT fields plus pemetrexid. Here, the median overall survival in this study of tumor-treating fields plus pemetrexid was 13.8 months, and the historical control of second-line pemetrexid was 8.2 months. Again, this is a phase one, two trial. It was single arm. So this is the basis, in part, 
for the randomized phase three lunar trial. We also had preclinical studies demonstrating that the application of TT fields with either taxanes or immune checkpoint inhibitors led to greater efficacy in preclinical models. And now we're investigating the combination of TT fields with the standard of care therapy at the time of the study conduct, which included immune checkpoint inhibitors or docetaxel. So here we have 276 patients who had progression of disease on prior platinum-based chemotherapy, and they were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to tumor treating fields plus immune checkpoint inhibitors or docetaxel versus immune checkpoint inhibitors or docetaxel based on decision by the investigator and patients in this study. And then patients continued on and were able to continue on therapy until disease progression or intolerable toxicity. The primary endpoint of this study is overall survival with secondary endpoints of overall survival in the subgroups of ICI-treated or docetaxel-treated patients. And then we're also looking at overall uh, response rate, PFS, and of course, safety. And what the study showed, the key endpoint that was met was the primary endpoint of overall survival in the ITT population, which included the ICI and the docetaxel-treated patients. The median overall survival in the overall population was 9.9 .9 months in the standard of care arm versus 13.2 months in the combination of TT fields plus standard of care. The hazard ratio here is 0.74 with a p-value of 0.035. And as you can see here, the curves separate early and maintain separation throughout. Of note, there was a more striking improvement in this magnitude of benefits seen in the ICI-treated subgroup of patients. The median overall survival in the ICI-treated subgroup was 10.8 months versus 18.5 months in TT fields plus ICI, with a hazard ratio of 0.63 and a p-value of 0.03. We also noted that in this study, as you can imagine, as we talked about, it happened back at a time where we had a shifting standard of care, where we were using ICIs in second line, or docetaxel. This was a global study with patients really accrued from different parts of the world. And during the conduct of the study, the treatment landscape changed where we started using immune checkpoint inhibitors in frontline for patients with advanced non-small cell lung cancer, not only as monotherapy, but also as combination chemoimmunotherapy. So initially, when we did the study, the um, submission of PDL1 was not mandatory um, and was optional. Um, as the study conduct went on, we did receive more sort of submission of PDL1 expression uh, globally. We had about 55% globally in terms of PDL1 submission rates, and in the US, about 83%. What we did note, though, in the patients that we did have PDL1 expression known, about 61% had PDL1 positive tumors, which is consistent with what we would expect in terms of breakdown of PDL1 expression in advanced non small cell lung cancer based in clinical trials and also real-world data. So this was a subset analysis now of the overall survival in the ICI subgroup based on available PDL1 expression that was known. Of note, with the patients that we had PDL1 expression, there were no imbalances between the subgroups of TT fields plus ICI versus ICI alone. But in this exploratory analysis, there seems to be a greater magnitude of benefit here in patients with positive PDL1 tumors that you see on the left with a median overall survival of 10.5 months versus 23.6 months 
the hazard ratio here is 0.49 and the p-value is 0.045. This magnitude of difference is also numerically even greater when you look at the PDL1, 50% or greater, but the numbers start to get really small in terms of the ends between the subgroups. And here again, here's the breakdown, as you can see here. We really do get to very small numbers. This was a very exploratory analysis, but I think, again, I think it um, sort of goes along with our hypothesis of the immunogenic cell death, and perhaps we need to confirm this in future studies, and we'll talk about those in the upcoming slides. In terms of the safety and the tolerability in the overall population, as well as, well as in the ICI subgroup, Overall, the treatment strategy of adding tumor-treating fields to the standard systemic backbone was well-tolerated. As one can imagine, the adverse uh, event frequencies were actually quite common amongst both subgroups, um, not, only, not necessarily related to tumor-treating fields. Most of the AEs were related to the systemic therapy or the disease itself. But the AE frequencies were actually comparable of higher-grade nature in both groups were comparable and there really wasn't any significant differences in terms of immune-related adverse events. The device-related adverse events occurred in 73% of patients receiving tumor-treating fields plus ICI, and mostly grade 1 and 2 local skin irritation. The incidence of grade 3 adverse events was low at 4.5%, not only in the ICI-treated subgroups plus TT fields, but this was actually consistent in the overall study in the ITT population as well. Again, here in this study, there were no grade four adverse events, and there were no deaths attributable to TT Fields therapy. So in this subset analysis, what we noted was, again, highlighting the primary endpoint here of improved overall survival with the application of TT Fields plus ICIRDOCETAXOL, acknowledging here that there does seem to be a more pronounced benefit in the patients in the ICI-treated subgroup, and then more importantly, in this exploratory analysis in the patients with pdl one positive tumors. However, you know, this increasing magnitude of benefit with the increasing pdl one expression really does need to be confirmed in future studies, given the exploratory nature of this analysis, as well as the small sample size. So let's go to a case. This is a 71-year-old male with non-small cell lung cancer. This patient had um, bone metastasis. It was mutation negative tumor, PDL1, 3% are low. This patient received three cycles of platinum chemotherapy with pembrolizumab and then had disease progression. So after discussion about second-line treatment options, the standard of care is docetaxel plus minus ramisurumab. This patient enrolled in EF24 and received docetaxel as their uh, standard of care systemic uh, backbone in combination with TT fields and was randomized to the experimental arm. Here's future directions. A lot, I think, we still need to learn about the application of tumor treating fields in this evolving landscape of treatment in the front line with the use of immunotherapy or chemoimmunotherapy. This is now the phase two Keynote B36 trial investigating the use of tumor treating fields therapy or TT fields in combination with pembrolizumab in the frontline setting. In this study, patients with previously untreated, mutation negative, unresectable, stage three or four non small cell lung cancer with PDL1 positive tumors are enrolled. 
And this study has actually been amended um, as we have learned more from the lunar trial. It's been amended to now be a randomized phase two study that's randomizing patients to the combination of pembrolizumab plus TT fields versus pembrolizumab alone with the primary endpoint of progression-free survival. We also have this ongoing study here called the Lunar 2 trial. Now this is a randomized phase three study investigating now the combination of tumor treating fields plus chemoimmunotherapy with our standard key, uh, Keynote 189 regimen of pembrolizumab plus platinum plus pemetrexed in the non-squamous population and then the Keynote 407, which is Pembro plus platinum plus taxanes versus the standard of care alone. Here, this is now a randomized phase three study with dual primary endpoints of overall survival as well as progression-free survival. And can we integrate TT fields in combination with um, maintenance immunotherapy for patients with locally advanced, unresectable non-small cell lung cancer after completion of chemoradiation? Clinical trials are being developed to investigate this strategy as well. So let's talk about dermatitis. We saw here both in the pilot study with pemetrexed, as well as in the lunar trial and the malignant pleural mesothelioma. This is a consistent theme, overall well-tolerated strategy, but certainly really need to be um, on top of risk factors at baseline for dermatitis. And I think it's really important at baseline as considering the use of TT fields is to look at risk factors for dermatitis. And here are some potential risk factors that you want to consider and try to optimize and perhaps work in a multidisciplinary fashion with dermatology so that patients can, from the get-go, be optimized to not only recognize, but also manage and potentially mitigate the risk of dermatitis. So here are some potential TT field therapy-associated skin adverse events that are seen in thoracic cancers. You know, it can range from pruritus to a contact dermatitis, but certainly, you know, all of the potential um, mitigation factors that we saw in GBM, we can also use in thoracic malignancies as well in order to prevent sort of escalation of this dermatitis to dermatitis with infection or pressure necrosis. And so here are some of the strategies for management and prevention of skin adverse events in thoracic malignancies. Certainly, I think it's really important, again, to kind of optimize that baseline make sure the skin is prepared, that it's clean, well-shaven, that the array placements are adequate and appropriate according to the body habitus of the patient. Um, and then certainly, if patients do develop dermatitis, steroids definitely can be used, topical antibiotics. The, uh, changing the arrays uh, every three to four days is very effective, and also changing the position of the arrays, as we talked about before, can also be effective. And if needed, I think ultimately giving a break taking a pause, you know, waiting 48 to 72 hours, and then replacing those rays. And I've heard from investigators around the globe in areas that are very hot that perhaps they need to change the arrays a little bit more frequently in times of summer when it's really hot. So again, there are definitely um, methods and ways to prevent or manage the TT field-associated skin-related adverse events. But again, consider only those with minimal electrical impedance choosing the water-based, not the petroleum-based solutions. So let's go back to our patient. So our patient who enrolled on the uh, clinical trial and was randomized to the combination of docetaxel and TT fields, this patient started off at a 57% compliance, but developed grade two skin blisters. And after two cycles of docetaxel chemotherapy, the patient reported significant fatigue, 
cytopenia, decline in performance status, and this resulted in a decline to 32% compliance with TT fields. The patient continued to experience skin irritation and was treated with steroids, uh, but expressed preference to continue to wear the device. A few things I wanted to point out, that in our study, this actually kind of goes along with the overall results of the study. The analysis of the study demonstrated that over the first three months, the compliance in the docetaxel arm was exactly 57%, and the immune checkpoint inhibitors was about 56%. But overall, in the entire conduct of the study, the adherence to TT field was about 19%, and still we saw that overall survival benefit, which I think, in my mind, we really need to understand does this adherence, that threshold, really apply to thoracic tumors as well? Okay, so really important, I think, as you know, we talk about using a new treatment modality that patients and clinicians are not accustomed to using, is really thinking about what are the strategies, if this rolls out in thoracic malignancies to clinical practice, that we can use to help clinicians, patients, and their caregivers understand how to use TT fields, how to stay adherent to TT fields, and certainly to continue to derive benefit from using it if they are deriving benefit. So in terms of how we did it on the study, we had a lot of support. Uh, we had device support specialists that actually met the patient at their home. They had 24-7 a device support technician that was available to troubleshoot and educate the patient and their family on how to use the device. And then certainly, um, it was really important for the patients to continue to come into the clinic, continue to assess risk factors and manage the dermatitis, and continue to receive their systemic therapies in the clinic with their clinician. So patient education is critical. Adherence has been lower than what is targeted in thoracic malignancies, but I do think we need to understand whether that really truly has an impact in outcomes in thoracic malignancies, and continuous monitoring and check-ins are really important for patients and their families. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, that was excellent, and we're gonna uh, have a chance for questions at the end, uh, but for now, uh, we're gonna have Dr. Horn present about uh, other solid tumors. And the bright path that exists. So despite major advances in a number of other disease sites that we haven't spoken about today, there is still a lot of morbidity associated with it advancing disease and progression of disease. And we've had a lot of stagnation in a lot of those arenas over the last couple of decades, mostly in part because surgery can only do so much, radiation can only do so much. We haven't broken through with immunotherapies uh, in, in some diseases. And the impact of that is adverse on quality of life. And so there is a rationale to try and use tumor treating fields as a synergistic approach to treating some of these diseases to maintain potentially improved quality of life uh, and not increase toxicity, which we've seen from all of the prior studies is feasible. So first we're gonna discuss pancreatic cancer. There's preclinical data that indicates combining tumor treating fields with gemcitabine improves tumor cell kill uh, compared to using just gemcitabine alone, which you can see from these plots in the bottom left. And the frequency is 150 kilohertz, which is similar to some other disease sites where tumor treat treating fields are already used and can inhibit the growth of pancreatic tumor cells. 
Similar to the thorax, four transducer arrays are used. They're just not placed on the thorax, they're placed on the abdomen instead. And so the initial study was the PANOVA study, looking at tumor treating fields with gemcitabine and abraxane, nabpaclitaxel. 40 patients were enrolled. The median progression-free survival is close to eight and a half months, and overall survival was just shy of 15 months with uh, the combination of gemcitabine and tumor treating fields. In those who were treated with a combination of gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, the median progression-free survival was just over 12 and a half months, and the median overall survival was not reached. The trial enrolled both locally advanced and metastatic patients, which you can see are depicted by the green and purple lines respectively on those curves. In comparison with standards of care, the progression-free survival, again, with a combination of nabpaclitaxel and gemcitabine with tumor treating fields was a little over 12 and a half months. Uh, and in comparison to historical controls, only five and a half months with chemotherapy alone. Similarly, uh, the median overall survival was not reached, but in historical controls was eight and a half months. And landmark one-year survival rates were a little over doubled at 72%. Uh, PR rates, the partial response rate, was also uh, just about doubled. And the clinical benefit, which is a combination of stable disease and partial response, was almost 90% in comparison to 50%. So that's fairly encouraging. That led to the phase three PANOVA trial, which is looking at locally advanced pancreatic cancers uh, that are not amenable to surgical resection, randomizing between standard of care chemotherapy, which again is gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, versus that same chemotherapy backbone with the addition of tumor treating fields. Primary endpoint is overall survival with the expected secondary endpoints and progression-free survival, response rates, landmark survival, and quality of life. There are a number of other ongoing studies looking at this same patient population. So we're looking at uh, the addition of monoclonal antibodies to a chemotherapy backbone. Also looking at intraarterial gemcitabine, the nanonife system, which is another form of ablation uh, in comparison to radiation, uh, looking at addition, uh, different chemotherapy backbones, uh, and some uh, intratumoral paclitaxel delivery. Um, so those are all additional uh, studies that are underway, but as you can imagine, as you add on additional drugs or ad additional interventions, you add on additional risk for side effects, to toxicity, and impact on quality of life. Okay, next up, we're going to look at hepatocellular carcinoma and gastric cancer, another two disease sites which are typically very difficult to treat. There's the, the phase two HEPANOVA trial, looking at advanced hepatocellular carcinomas, in uh, combination with serafinib for unresectable or advanced HCCs. Um, this small study enrolled 25 patients, uh, and they were treated uh, with that combination and had imaging fairly frequently to assess overall response rates. That study showed uh, a, an overall response rate of 9.5%, uh, um, but a disease control rate, so again, that's stable disease plus partial response of 76%. If they were able to remain on treatment for three months, for 12 weeks or more, those numbers went up 
so the overall response rate was 18%, and the disease control rate was 91%. In comparison with historical controls there on the right, you can see that those are fairly vast improvements. The EF31 trial is another phase two study looking at first-line treatment of gastric cancers. And this is in combination with a gastric chemotherapy cocktail of Zelox, which is uh, a, a triplet uh, chemotherapy backbone. This study enrolled uh, patients with unresectable, locally advanced, or metastatic GE junction or gastric adenocarcinomas. Um, and this study had 28 patients uh, that were enrolled. And again, overall response rate was the primary endpoint to assess the potential for efficacy. It was 50% for patients treated with tumor treating fields together with standard of care chemotherapy. And lastly, the phase three INNOVATE study was a study in advanced ovarian cancers Typically, the last-line standard-of-care systemic option for women with ovarian cancer is weekly taxol. And so this study uh, sought to determine whether or not there was an impact in combining weekly taxol with tumor-treating fields, and this is based on uh, phase two data that indicated the combination may be more efficacious in comparison to historical uh, controls. Uh, this was a fairly large study enrolling over 550 women, uh, and they were randomized to receive weekly taxol versus weekly taxol with tumor treating fields, and the median overall survival was not different. It was 12.2 months versus 11.9 months with taxol alone. There was some subset analyses undertaken that indicated women who had fewer prior lines of chemotherapy do, maybe did stand to benefit, but that was an unplanned subset analysis. Ovarian cancer is another arena where there are a multitude of uh, ongoing studies, as are HCC and gastric cancer, and this is a list of a number of studies which are ongoing, again, implementing additional interventions or additional um, medical therapies, uh, which all do carry with them the additional risk for morbidity and side effects. So what are the future directions of tumor-treating fields? Uh, tumor-treating fields and radiation, in particular, do have complementary but non-overlapping mechanisms of action. They both induce DNA damage, albeit via different mechanisms. Tumor-treating fields interfere with DNA double-strand break homologous recombination. Um, they also increase gamma-H2AX expression and increase cell kill when combined with radiation, which we've seen uh, in vitro. Um, so the proof of concept of this is hopefully going to come from the Trident study, again, which is evaluating tumor treating fields concurrently with radiation and temozolomide in glioblastoma. Mouse models do suggest that there's an immun immunostimulatory effect to tumor treating fields. So there's the potential that tumor treating fields could also upregulate PDL1 expression. Uh, so in studies uh, where tumor-treating fields are being combined with drugs like pembrolizumab, this may have a potentiating effect uh, over the application of uh, immunotherapy drugs by themselves. PARP inhibitors uh, are also another topic where further exploration may be undertaken. 
Um, there is some in vitro data that suggests that tumor treating fields induce a state of BRCA in this, um, similar to women who have ovarian cancer with a, a BRCA gene mutation. Um, tumor treating fields increase double strand DNA breaks, uh, and BRCA1 and 2, as well as other DNA repair genes, if they are down regulated, fail to repair these double strand breaks. Uh, and, and which uh, could make these tumors more susceptible to PARP inhibitors, also possibly more susceptible to radiation. And so we need to keep in mind that the multidisciplinary and multimodal care of patients with cancer involves a multitude of options. There are a lot of new techniques, including tumor-treating fields and combined modality treatments that may improve outcomes in comparison to historical systemic therapy approaches as we have gone through this evening. And there are a number of confirmatory prospective trials underway that will shed light on additional options beyond the traditional chemotherapy, TKIs, immunotherapy, and other treatment strategies. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we're gonna move to the QA portion. We have questions that have come in uh, both from you and uh, also from our uh, uh, online viewers. Uh, what I'll do is I'll ask, uh, I'll state the question and then we can uh, decide who best to answer it. Uh, so uh, the first question is about uh, the potential inconvenience of carrying around the, the field generator and the battery pack and uh, what is sort of the feedback on better ways to manage this or how do patients manage this? Uh, and I think we've all had patients that are used to doing this, so I don't know if... I can, tell, I can tell you from the clinical trial experience, um, even as the study evolved, the actual um, device itself became smaller and lighter, and I think that as technology evolves and the device is smaller and lighter, I think that definitely is an improvement. Within the non-small cell lung cancer uh, study, the lunar trial, we did look at health-related quality of life measures, and there was no detriment in terms of quality of life in patients who were using TT field in combination with systemic therapies. As you can see from the data, there is sort of a decrease in usage over time, um, and I think it varies throughout the days. You know, we're able to capture that. The monthly usage rate uh, is able to be captured. Um, so I think overall, I think it's about education and perhaps having more data in terms of, you know, is there really a device usage target that is optimal? Um, and then I think ultimately uh, working with the clinicians, I, I don't think it necessarily is something that is not doable, but it definitely requires education and continued sort of monitoring and counseling about it. Great. Uh, I'm going to kind of jump around here a little bit. Um, one is a simple uh, sort of a question I can just take uh, quickly. Uh, someone asked about implantable tumor treating field devices. This is certainly an area of research, but there's nothing out there right now. Uh, but yes, uh, the, this could improve uh, the field strength um, directly where it's needed, though in a disease that like an infiltrative glioma that may be hard to know exactly where to place it. Um, uh, let's see, uh, here's a question about uh, someone is interested in integrating TT fields into their community practice. How do, how do they facilitate that in the community practice? You want to? Sure. Um, 
So the first step to being able uh, to prescribe tumor treating fields is getting linked up with someone from Novacure to undergo formal training. Um, it is not terribly dissimilar to this, but comes with a bit more nuts and bolts um, so that you understand the prescription process, uh, a little bit more about device management, uh, the ins and outs of working with the device support specialists, and then that facilitates you being able to prescribe uh, the tumor treating fields device. Um, and then the device support specialist will help actually get the patient started on treatment and then is sort of your liaison with the patient. Um, so they have a lot of soft touch points with the patient and can communicate with you in your clinic uh, so that you can better manage those patients. Um, but it doesn't take a whole lot to actually get started. And I should just, again, direct you to the practice guide uh, where all the information on incorporating this into your practice can be found in four easy steps, uh, I am told. Um, let's, uh, oh, here's a question. When will Lunar 2 launch? And can you provide more details of the design of the study? Yeah, Lunar, t Lunar 2 is, is launching. Um, that will be, again, a study investigating the use of tumor treating fields in the front line in patients with um, advanced non-small cell lung cancer without actual mutation. Uh, and this is gonna be a randomized phase three study, randomizing patients to tumor treating fields plus standard platinum-based chemotherapy with pembrolizumab versus chemoimmunotherapy. The primary endpoints in the study are overall survival and progression-free survival. So that study I think is a key study along with the other study that we talked about, Kino-B36, investigating the use of monotherapy pembrolizumab in a randomized phase two setting as well. So I think, you know, um, a lot of excitement in combining these with immunotherapies and then sort of using it in the front line where the majority of the patients in the U.S. are using immunotherapy. Globally, um, that's still not the case. So for patients that don't receive immunotherapy in the front line, um, if they have access to immunotherapy in the second line, incorporating TT fields in combination with immunotherapy could also be an option for those patients. Great, thanks. Um, a couple of ovarian cancer questions I'm going to kind of bundle. Um, first, are there any new studies of TT fields in ovarian cancer plans? As far as I'm aware, no. Well, that uh, That is, at this point, up in the air. And what is this sort of... Um, explanation for uh, that's been given as to why that trial d did not reach its end point? There are a number of possible explanations. It may relate to some of the metrics that we saw that predict for survival in glioblastoma, such as the, the power density. Um, ovarian cancer being a very diffuse disease, um, it, it is very difficult to cover the entire peritoneum, uh, the whole peritoneal cavity for that matter. Um, and so the penetration may not have been sufficient. Um, there could have been some compliance issues um, amongst other things, but um, unfortunately the, the data speaks for itself. Great, thanks. Um, here's a, a mechanistic question. Uh, which is, uh, why does systemic therapy work in synergy with tumor-treating fields? I suppose I can address that. Uh, most, many systemic therapies, particularly classic cytotoxic agents, interfere with 
uh, cell division or mitosis. They're often antimitotics on their own, or they cause DNA damage directly, uh, and so that would work well with the mechanisms demonstrated for tumor-treating fields. Um, let's see, here's a, here's a, a, a lung cancer question. Uh, if TT fields stop cells in mitosis, could it be used also for uh, tumors that have driver mutations for which we use targeted therapies, but those were not included in the, in the previous design? So in the lunar trial, um, the patients with actual mutations were not actually excluded, um, but the majority of the patients didn't have a prior history of being on targeted therapies. And in the lunar trial, one of the inclusion criteria was that prior platinum-based chemotherapy was the most recent prior therapy. Um, we don't have complete data on the genomic um, molecular status of these patients globally. Um, this combination, given that I think a lot of the interest is with immunotherapy, uh, is unlikely to be moving forward in patients with actionable mutations unless we find you know, a better systemic backbone that we use for patients with actionable drivers. Immunotherapy tends to be ineffective in patients with driver mutations. Um, but I think further investigation would need to be done. But I think at this time, the way the field is moving, given sort of the combination with IO being the most promising, it probably won't target the population of patients with driver mutations. Thank you. Uh, this is something maybe each of us can answer. Uh, how do you talk to your patients about the perception that it's inconvenient to be wearing this device? Um, you know, in, for glioblastoma patients, they have to shave their head constantly. That's clearly inconvenient. Uh, how do you, each of you approach that with your patients? I think it's an individualized discussion with your patient and really sort of talking to them about the data, what it looks like, what the potential benefits are versus risks. You know, I do phase one clinical trials, so I have these difficult discussions all the time where you're talking about having a patient come in, you know, several days in a row, being there for 10 hours a day for multiple blood draws for PKs and research biopsies. And I think patients are really motivated to do something that they think they will derive benefit from? Will they derive an improved overall survival? Will their quality of life be acceptable? And will they derive clinical benefit that's meaningful to their lives? And I think once you have that conversation, and you know, another thing I talk to them about is, you don't have to stay on this therapy if you're not deriving benefit, right? So the standards of care are quickly evolving in non-small cell lung cancer. Quality of life is huge but I think having a meaningful discussion with your patient about risks and benefits, and then they get to decide. You know, if they wanna do it, they'll do it. And I think it's just a matter of partnering and continuing education, and then providing that village for your patient, right? We need a multidisciplinary care, incorporating early palliative care, good nursing support, dermatology, radiation oncology, TT Fields is, a, in my mind, a complementary treatment strategy. So we're still going to need to use all of the other, you know, um, treatment strategies potentially and expertise from all the other members of the team. And I think patients are, are willing to try new things um, if it's meaningful to them. And I think um, it's an ongoing conversation. That is very well put. I would also say that I have a mannequin that has arrays in my office, and so I will bring that out to show um, just so they can get a better sense of what does the battery pack look like and the transducer arrays. 
um, so that they understand what they will be wearing and carrying around so that they can actually feel the heft of the, of the battery pack and the, the transducer. Um, and that, I think, sometimes helps uh, them in making their decisions. Yeah, I, I will not add further so we can get a couple more questions in before we time out. Uh, but that is great. Um, one interesting question in the pancreatic cancer space, has TT fields ever been used to convert, say, a, a borderline resectable to a resectable case? So that is uh, one of the secondary endpoints of the ongoing study is conversion to resectability. Um, keep in mind the inclusion criteria is upfront unresectable pancreatic cancer, and they're treated with uh, gemcitabine abraxane uh, with or without tumor treating fields. So they're going to evaluate whether or not that strategy improves resectability in that population or not as a secondary endpoint. Great. And I, I think we are out of time. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, so I want to uh, apologize for not getting to every last question. They were excellent. I want to thank uh, my colleagues here for their excellent presentations and answers. Uh, thank you, Peerview. And uh, thank you to all of you, both again here in the room and online for attending this event. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HHW860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novacure Incorporated.